Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group. Group, member FDIC and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to the OK Computer podcast takeover of the On the Tape feed. OK Computer is the latest offering for risk reversal media. We're going to cover all things tech, public and private markets, the intersection of Web 2 and Web 3. We have this amazing group of co-hosts and contributors. This is going to be in the On the Tape feed for a short period of time. So please follow OK Computer in your podcast stores so you get new episodes Every Wednesday on your phone. Thanks. Here we are for OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. I'm here with Rick Heitzman, my co-host of First Mark Capital. Rick, happy new year. You just got back from down under and now you found yourself in Texas. How's it going, man? It's going well. Happy new year to you. I'm avoiding COVID so far. I'm (laughs) testing every day, but maybe I'm still on the run. If I stay on the run, I could avoid it for at least another week or so. Well, I'll tell you this, the Omicron made its way through your OK Computer co-hosts here. I had it. Katie had it. Packy and Jared and I were on last week. They both had it. I heard that. I haven't checked in with Meltem in a little bit. Hopefully she's doing okay. Hopefully I'm a contrarian and don't follow the pack into the Omicron. All right, let's get into this here, man, because the stock market, at least as it relates to tech stocks, is having a heck of a week, heck of a year so far. And I'm just curious to get your sense because obviously you're very focused on the private market specifically and technology, but the bifurcation between these mega cap names, and you and I have talked about this a lot. I think we talked about it a couple of weeks ago on the pod here. The big names are hanging in there. You know what they are. It's the Apple, the Microsoft, the Google, the Amazon, but the devastation, the absolute bludgeoning in so many different names this week alone in tech stocks and companies that had their business models massively accelerated and they saw huge adoption and they saw like this tremendous growth and it's been decelerating. A lot of these stocks is not a new story for 2022, Rick, but they've been coming in hard. But what's happened so far this year in some of these SaaS names and some of these social media names is really pretty devastating. What's your take here? And I'm just curious what you think. How do you extrapolate that to the private markets? As a holder of a lot of technology companies I love, whether that be through companies I've gotten distributions on that I backed early, locked up stock, et cetera, I've felt that devastation professionally and personally. What we're seeing is, I think as everybody is anticipating interest rates rising, folks are therefore discounting growth harder. So some of these companies, you were discounting back 2025 numbers a year ago. Some of these companies you were thinking about in a world where you're not getting any value by sitting on the sidelines, at least could I have a flyer? And sadly, I think the baby is getting thrown out with the bathwater on a lot of these. And I think 2022, one of the headlines is going to be business model matters and business matters. And at least uh, as I've talked to public market and private market investors over the last cycle, they've said SaaS is hot, crypto's hot, NFTs super hot. I just want to play a sector and go long a sector. And we've been against that in general, personally, and as a group at Firstmark, where the business matters, execution matters, things like market size and long-term business model matter. And I think 
Last year, people were indiscriminately maybe buying things or even two years ago. And I think now they're indiscriminately throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And 2022 will be hopefully people doing their work and figuring out what's working and what's not. But let's talk about that for a second here, because you don't see too many private down rounds or you haven't over the last couple of years in in some of these big growth areas. And we're going to hit a bunch of names in crypto space that are seeing tremendous. These are marketplaces. I mean, NFT, OpenSea probably looks a lot like a lot of consumer marketplaces that you've looked at over the last 20 years that you've invested in that have been rocket ships, that sort of thing. But it just happens to be obviously focused on the crypto markets. But let's think about this name. Okay, Shop. And I know this is a name that you've been involved with for years and years. This stock on Tuesday was down 10%, Rick, in one day. This is a company that has a $150 billion market cap, and it's down 30% in just the last couple of months. So what is it that public market investors are looking at this massively disruptive company? This is going to be a trillion-dollar market cap company at some point. Can we both agree on that at some point in the future? Yes. So why the hell did it literally just use $50 billion in market cap or something in just a matter of months? It's amazing. It lost basically all of the other e-commerce. It lost eight Warby Parkers in in a month. If you think about that, I think that's a baby out with the bathwater. When you look at market size, and I don't think anyone thinks the e-commerce growth is slowing down anytime soon. If you look at execution, and Toby and Harley have executed the hell out out of everything along the way, and you look at their ability to be important in the medium term and long term, there's no reason why this shouldn't be a trillion dollar company. I think a lot of investors are getting scared and they're saying, all right, let's just take every single high multiple SaaS company and discount it 30%. Or let's take every single company that's trading over X percent or is up X percent and get out of that. And I think it's more people playing scared than people playing thoughtfully when you look at individual names. Yeah. And it probably goes back a little bit to that point you made about interest rates, you know, and this is not too different of an environment that we saw in Q1 of 2021 when interest rates were heading meaningfully higher in a very short period of time. We saw a lot of high growth, high valuation stocks really get hard, but just some of the devastation we're seeing right now, you just mentioned SaaS. I mean, these are big companies. We Adobe, Salesforce, these stocks were down 10% earlier in the week. They're down 5% right now, the day after. DocuSign's gotten cut in half. Yeah. I've never, listen, the last time I've seen stocks that were so in favor get cut in half or down 60, 70, 80% in a lot of instances was really in the aftermath of the dot-com implosion in 2001-02. And what's different now, though, Rick, is the relative outperformance of a handful of names, and you know what they are. It's Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, a few others you want to throw in there, that they really are just keeping the whole ship afloat. So if you look at the major indices in the stock market, look at the NASDAQ in particular, and those four names make up 30-some percent of the NASDAQ 100, it's only a few percent from its all-time high. And so there's a lot of devastation. I want to just broaden this out a little bit to all of the inventory that's come to market over the last couple of years, whether it be through SPAC, direct listing, regular way IPOs. Is that a story that you think is something that we're going to be hearing a whole heck of a lot about in 2022? Because there's a lot of small cap or mid cap names that just don't have the ability to capture a lot of investors' attention that are just getting just absolutely destroyed here. And there are a lot of great companies at great values. I think that we've seen a number of companies who can't get over that $3 billion-ish type market cap. And as we advise companies, we think about you have to be big enough that meaningful long-term players could create a meaningful position. So if you're a big Boston-based long-only fund, 
Can you have a $50, $100 million position in a stock that you think will double or triple over the next couple of years? And you have to be able to get both in and out of that stock without having some massive illiquidity. And if your company has a $2 billion market cap, is still under lockup, therefore maybe the venture guys or private investors own half of it, and you try and then you add management to it and you try and build a $100 million position, even a $50 million position is unreasonable. It's not really buyable by that block of investors. And it's actually not even sellable. So if you're a venture guy that owns 10, 15% of a company and the company has no volume, you can't distribute that to your LPs, nor can you sell that out to the market except at a big discount. So you're stuck in it also. And so you have these frozen cap tables that just slowly drift down and those companies become roach motels. And therefore, it was part of the reason that people extended their life as private companies of how do you go, how are you big enough that you create liquidity in your cap table to let people out and let people in at size who believe in the story? This environment, though, Rick, reminds me a lot of this, the period between 1999 and 2001, where companies couldn't wait to go public and get that cash on their balance sheet so they could do all the M&A and hire people and do whatever the hell it is that they wanted to do. And there's also a stature factor. But I'm talking to a bunch and I'm, you're probably talking to a whole heck of a lot more than I am. I'm talking to a lot of people who've recently gone public and they're like, wait a minute, why are we public? Because if the public markets aren't going to assign the same sort of value that no shortage of growth investors were and VCs prior to them, why are we here? What are we doing? Because if anything, it's kind of a black mark on our reputation to have our stock trading the way it is and us constantly having to defend the valuation. Well, I think there's two things. We have a number of companies that are hoping to go public in 2022 that are thinking about, well, why would I go public if the bankers are telling me the valuation's X dollars when theoretically you could raise money at a higher price in the private markets? I think there's two things at work. I think the public market reacts to market realities much quicker than the private market. They mark to market every day. They take in inputs and have little cigarette boats that move very, very quickly. Whereas private markets, you're thinking about these long-term arcs, and you don't really see your portfolio mark to market. So you don't really see the pain until much further out. And going back to 20 years ago, when you and I were both in the business, it took the private market six to 12 months to react to what the public market saw in the first two or three weeks, that there was a massive correction happening. And I I don't think this is going to be 2000, 2001 again. It might be a time where there's a shakeout and the quality of company which people might not have cared about in 2021 is going to be really pushed to the forefront in 2022. And going back to, I was reading something the other day on that same theme of 20 years ago, what was happening, that if you would have bought every single IPO in 1999, I think 80% went out of business and another 10 or 15% lost money until they were eventually sold or you were able to trade out. But if you would have bought everything, you still would have made money because there was still the Ebays in there. There was still a lot of high quality companies in there. And it just took that long for everything to shake out. That sounds like a VC strategy for the public markets there, bud. It really is. It really is that there's going to be winners and losers. And at that time, those companies were more like VC companies because they were not fully formed. But I think if you went back and bought a basket of 2021 IPOs, you're probably going to make money but you're probably going to lose money on a lot of them. And I think 
as people are thinking about 2022, they're going back and doing the work that maybe they should have done last year, this year, and thinking about if there are IPOs that they liked that they didn't get a chance to do work on that are now on sale, could they back the truck up to them? Which I think from a public market perspective might cause a little bit of a traffic jam for guys getting out this year when last year's stuff's still on the rack and on clearance. Just to put a bow on this conversation, they've taken so many dozens and dozens and dozens of great companies out to the woodshed. They've re-rated them. At some point, I suspect, because business cycles have just accelerated over the last 20 years, that term sheets that are going out in a couple of weeks, if we're still seeing very depressed values on some of these publicly traded tech stocks, you're going to start seeing in the private market some discounts. Because I was just amazed at the mental gymnastics that some investors or people on Twitter or analysts we're going to to justify some of these growth companies, real market cap, 10 billion plus that were trading at 30, 40 times sales last year. You know what I mean? Like those would have been prior cycles uh, deemed to be expensive as PE multiples. And so we're seeing massive compression here in the public markets. I suspect it has to work its way a little bit in the private markets. And I just want to finish this off and get your thoughts on this. There was an article in the information earlier in the week where Kirsten Green, a forerunner, said there's more money than there are good deals out there. And I'm just curious, is there just too much money? chasing too few deals. I would generally agree with them. And as I talk to people across asset classes, I think that's been the story of the last three to five years. I have a friend that buys parking lots in New York City, and he thought there were too much capital in that market. You talk to the guys who do art buying. They hate it. They think the market's broken because there's too much capital. I think there's been too much capital everywhere. And I think whether it's the public equities market taking a breath or whether it be interest rates eking up and people finally investing in fixed income. I think everybody's looking to catch their breath a little bit and uh, figure out what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. So I just mentioned OpenSea. And so I suspect that this is a business model that you're very familiar with, marketplaces. And obviously what they sell is pretty important when you think of the addressable market. It's kind of undefinable right now. And I think it's pretty fascinating. They just raised $300 million at a $13.3 billion valuation. Their transaction values in 2020, you ready for this, Rick? Were $22 million. Okay. And in 2021, they did $14 billion in transaction value and $350 million in fees based on that. What's your take on that? Because I have to assume, and and listen, there's plenty of other NFT marketplaces out there. Your friend over at Fanatics just bought Tops. I mean, that that has to be some angle as far as NFTs. Oh, yeah. Is this going to be a story for 2022, digital marketplaces? I think it has been a story since eBay in 1999. I think it's been the best business model of the last 20 years. And what the internet allows you to do is provide discovery on one side or on both sides of the equation of both supply and demand, enabling individual workers and things like Upwork or sellers at StubHub or hosts at Airbnb and disrupt historically agents who have taken too many fees. So I love the marketplace model. We've been in all those companies. It's been great for us. I think that's going to continue to exist. And historically, the metric was oversimplifying at one times GMV was your value. So if OpenSea was doing 14 billion, a merchandise value, 13.6, it probably didn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. Are you surprised though? That's a number that I remember. I was surprised by the gross merchandise value. I was also, frankly, a little bit surprised by their rake didn't seem that great at 300 million on 13 billion. I mean, obviously it's a great revenue number, but also historically, you're trading at 10 to 15 times that. 
So that's not outside the realm of historic marketplace multiples. It seems very reasonable. I haven't done enough research to know is that transaction fees, seller fees, buyer fees, are they processing transaction? No, I think it's both. I think it's all of the above. And I actually also wonder if they're holding that as ETH on their balance sheet. So that'd be interesting to know. All right, let me ask you this, Rick, because I, I watch you on Twitter. You and I interact here and there. You don't seem to be beefing. You know, you're a Web2 guy. You don't seem to be beefing on Twitter with the Web3 guys. The Web2 guys are beefing. Get, get Aaron Levy on, get Chesky on. Everybody's looking for a fight now. I know, but is it good fun? Or I mean, listen, I actually find it pretty fascinating to see these are brilliant people. They built brilliant companies that throw Jack in there. You throw Chris Dixon in there. Yeah. There's been more of this, and you and I have talked about this over the last few weeks or so. I think it's funny because Packy McCormick, our friend, he had a how it started, how it's going thing with the Aaron Levy, Brian Chesky thing. And you and I were chatting about it earlier. Listen, he's crowdsourcing a lot of great ideas. And some of the most brilliant minds as they think about Web3 are giving him a lot of good ideas. And he seems like the sort of guy who's going to act on him. And you know him. You've been an investor in that company. Hey, he's a great hustler and a great thinker. I love Packy. I mean, the other thing is, if you look at Chesky and a lot of great executives look to their customers in terms of where their roadmap is, Chesky was down on Web3. And then I think a day or two later, and I think we were looking to Packy, the number one request from uh, Airbnb customers is to pay in crypto. That's right. So they're saying it's not for young guys. They're not yelling at people to get off their lawn. Yeah, There's not the guy Adami element there. Oh my God. But I think at the same time, they're saying, well, how does this work? And I think going back to, it's you know, if 2022 is the year of business model and paying for the sins of past bad diligence. Why do some of these Web3 companies exist? Why do some of these software companies exist? And if they're going to be re-rated, I'd anticipate a lot of them being re-rated up and down, basically how, how that company works. All right. So, you know, you jumped ahead a little bit, paying for the sins of past bad diligence. We're going to get to Elizabeth Holmes and Adam Newman in a second here, but I really wanted to go back when I was thinking about the Web 2 and the Web 3 beef. You know, I was thinking to myself, where have we seen this sort of stuff before? And hopefully Amanda will put this in the show notes. You remember this audio, Larry Ellison was speaking, it might've been at a user conference back in 2008. And he went on this like tirade for like three minutes. What the hell is cloud computing? He was just like, you know, because remember back then it was like Salesforce and it was VMware. It was all these. Well, but it was also Siebel. He was buying Siebel systems. He was buying PeopleSoft. He was buying legacy application on-premise software. I think Larry Ellison's brilliant. And part of the brilliance is, I think in the three or four months before the rant, he had seeded both Salesforce and NetSuite. Mark and Zach had both worked for him at Oracle. You probably have to look what people are doing, not what they're saying. Yeah. And I think at one point he had made more money as an angel investor in Salesforce and an angel investor in NetSuite over that time period than he did running Oracle, despite their success. So he was, I think he was talking up Oracle, but made sure the back door was locked by making billions as an investor. I'd love to see you know, what Aaron Levy's investing in now, and is he doing all distributed file systems on Web3 to make sure he has his own Salesforce in his back pocket. No, that's that's actually great insight. And he ended up buying NetSuite also just in, in the last couple of years, finally, too. The other one, and I don't think history is going to be so kind to this take, was Steve Ballmer on the iPhone. There's no chance that the iPhone is going to get any significant market share. No chance. No one's ever going to pay $500 for a phone. And, and you know what? I got to tell you, I was really wrong about that. I don't know if you remember right out of the gate when Apple, they did price that phone at $500. There wasn't really any subsidy at the time because it was 
exclusive on AT&T and there was just they knew it was going to be a small kind of market. And there was no app store. So they weren't they couldn't make money through transactions or, or through owning a platform. It was just kind of a, amazingly, it was just a phone. It was just a whiz bang little phone with a glass screen and uh, it didn't flip. And you know, the no buttons. I know, but you know what? I honestly, I would have bet my like cat that if you had said to me in 2022, are iPhones going to be a thousand dollars or are they going to be a hundred dollars? You know what I mean? I oh, yeah. easily would have said a hundred dollars. And that is the history of most hardware consumer electronics. Kudos to Apple. That's why it's three trillion. Hardware is a Trojan and you look at everything from Xboxes to everything going back where you, you get an install base of hardware and you sell software. And I think that's where everyone thought Apple was going until they decided, can I make money on both? And they had that audacity. All right, let's pivot real quickly back to your sins of bad due diligence. So Elizabeth Holmes this week, a jury found her guilty on four counts, um, wire fraud and a bunch of other stuff like that. Not not guilty. They didn't reach a conclusion on seven. And it seems like that could be retried, but she could get up to 20 years. What's your, what's your take on that? Did you ever look at Theranos? Did you ever, I'm sure you had plenty of conversations with it back in the day. It was skipping that it seemed like every other week, another billion dollars in valuation. And there was a lot of investors tripping over themselves to get in on this thing. I'm just curious if you have any personal stories about that. And what do you think? I mean, is this, if she were to get, let's say 15 years in prison, is it fair? So uh, it's a couple questions there. So I never saw it. They actually never showed the deal traditional VCs. If you look at the cap table, it was all non-traditional VCs, maybe because they didn't want to do the diligence. And I knew about the company. Obviously she had her Steve Jobs costume on, on every single magazine cover during that point. And I read Bad Blood which was excellent, even I think after the fact, a great reread. So I know a little bit about the story, but I think there were sins on both sides and I haven't had a chance to unpack the verdicts yet, but there was no diligence done. Therefore, you know, you got to blame a little bit of the investors, but at least from what I remember from Bad Blood, the diligence that was done was lied about. They were running samples to labs. They had a whole Potemkin village set up of programmers and machines. So people didn't do their work, but the work they did, Theranos lied about. I think the investors who lost a lot of money, a lot of it should be on their back. You know, as an investor who oftentimes relies on the integrity of young entrepreneurs to at least tell me the truth when you ask them a direct question, I think lying to someone's face intentionally and committing fraud has to be punished in some way. Yeah, it does. I mean, especially it's one thing if you're just like a consumer, like social app and you're lying about the numbers. This was a blood testing thing that a lot of health professionals were relying on to make other decisions about it. Well, listen, I think that was pretty fascinating. The last thing I'll just say, we got to get out of here, but Adam Newman was like, hold my beer here because if the punishment is that nobody's ever going to found or fund them again, or they're not going to be able to do any deals. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal where we co-founder Adam Newman is becoming an apartment mogul and is talking about his huge move in some residential buildings in southern cities. I think that's pretty interesting. And he's going to have his another day. And a billions and billions of dollars investor capital went up in fire with WeWork. And he really didn't pay any price because I think he's worth like a billion and a half or something like that. So yeah, he took a billion dollars off and said, you know, if people don't want to invest. I have plenty. It's the same thing with Travis, although I think Uber is, is an excellent company. Yeah, no, I agree with that. All right, listen, we covered a lot of ground here. It's great to have you back in the States. It's great to have you COVID free. I look forward to catching up more 
on OK Computer with you, Rick. Thanks for joining us today, man. It's going to be a great 22 for OK Computer. It's going to be the year of OK Computer. I'm with you, man. It is going to be. We're going to be a winner when this shakes out. I love it. All right, bud. I'll see you later this week. Thanks, man. Trust the process. And when we come back, Tom Lee of Fundstrat on crypto. Hey, listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to Current.com slash OK. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank member FDIC. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. All right, Tom Lee of FS Insight. Tom, you and I got to know each other quite well over the years through our hits on CNBC. I think of you as this tremendous macro strategist, lead strategist at Fundstrat. Now you have this retail-focused products with FS Insight. One of the first things I read every morning, it's your crypto newsletter. And on FS Insight, you have this whole dashboard of crypto data. You're arriving at certain assumptions about the crypto markets. Talk to me a little bit. How did you get there? How did you pivot a part of your business as a macro strategist, a macro shop into crypto? And why was it important at the time? Because I remember in 2017, you were all in. You were building frameworks for how this whole, I guess, new asset class could really grow, not over the next few months or, or, or quarters, but really over the next decades. Yes, probably fits into the history of the work we've done historically. So before Fundstrat, I was the chief equity strategist for J.P. Morgan. And then before that, I was a wireless analyst at several firms. And I think my takeaway, my 30 years of doing research is identifying multi-decade themes and sources of disruption are really the way investors can get the right lens. If we think back, it would have been great in 2004 if everyone just said, like, it's all about social media. And all we did was just buy Fang. And then we would all just been gajillion rich. So in 2017, while at Fundstrat, we did dedicate many months to trying to understand what would be the opportunity if someone wanted to try to view crypto. And back then it was just Bitcoin and Ethereum really. And there was Litecoin and others. But is there a structural reason that they could work? And were they doing something that was sufficiently unique that could actually be multi-year, multi-decade thing? And that's the conclusion we came to. Was it client-driven or was it your view as a strategist? You were literally putting a tentpole here. You're saying this is going to be a macro asset for decades to come. Or were you getting lots of questions from, let's say, macro investors? And that's why you dug in. There's a great book called Beyond the Brain talks about how people derive decisions. And there's a, most people tend to come to their conclusions based on rationalizing, thinking it through. But a lot of people in the financial business actually have their decisions come from their gut. I would say that's a lot of our work, that our intuition tells us that something could be quite unique. And I think the work, when we did crypto, 
we had zero clients asking us about it. It got a lot of pushback too. Yeah. In fact, we lost business on our first report. So we had one very loyal hedge fund client actually from the first time we sent out a report on Bitcoin. And our first report was July of that year. We said Bitcoin by 2022 could be anywhere from 25,000 to 125,000. And Bitcoin was, I don't know, 1,700, 18. And the first email was like, you've lost all credibility. Please cancel my service. You joined me at a conference that I helped put together for Credit Suisse for their tech investment banking group. This was October of 2017. And CNBC Fast Money, our show came to it and we covered that event. And that event was like standing room only. And Bitcoin crossed 5,000 for the first time ever. And I think to your point earlier that year, you had put out your report when Bitcoin was still below 2,000. And again, there were not too many crypto assets. And I think you laid it out at that conference, your view of this asset class and why it's going to grow and adopt and all the different things that are built on it. What's really interesting to me at that point, and you just said it was really just Ethereum and Bitcoin. Ethereum was only a couple years old at that point. When you think about what the market cap was back then and what it is right now at nearly half a trillion, let me ask you this, because Bitcoin last year had a good year. It was up 60%. It was down 30% from its highs, but Ethereum was up 400%. And that's the one that I think when you just mentioned DeFi and NFTs and some of this other stuff that's being built on crypto rails that a lot of people are really excited about. Has Bitcoin lost a bit of its luster and does it have a branding problem? Because it's called a cryptocurrency and people don't use it to transact. But on the flip side of it with Ethereum, with ETH, they use it. This is really the gas, really the story here and the things that are being the protocols that are being built on it. So I'm just curious for your sense with these two and then the idea of this just Bitcoin dominance and do we see a flippening in 2022? Yeah, I might start with the latter. Let's say crypto market 10 years from now, I think Bitcoin dominance is not higher. I think it's going to be lower because crypto is going to grow and value capture is going to be far beyond just storing value. That's really Bitcoin's thing. And if it's DeFi, if it's identity, if it's art, if it's digitally scarce, those can happen on other layer one chains. And there's actually gonna be a lot of businesses like Bitcoin mining, which is actually not a layer one. It's actually, a, you know, basically a business. Mm-hmm. It's turning into a great business. So I think the aggregate market cap is going to grow, but Bitcoin dominance should therefore shrink. But will something supplant Bitcoin as a store value, like as a property measure and security network? I doubt it. Bitcoin's pretty bulletproof now, but that's not necessarily how crypto's value capture is growing. So yeah, there's going to be plenty of other crypto tokens. Most of the research that you guys do, the quant research you do is really focused on these two layer ones. Part of that answer is that 10 years from now, the entire crypto pie is going to be much larger. And I know a lot of people think about Bitcoin and they think about the global market cap of gold, 12 or 13 trillion or something like that. So Bitcoin hovering around 1 trillion-ish right now, how big do you see the market 10 years from now? Listen, I know you get caught all the time. You have to give price targets and stuff like that. And that's kind of a bit goofy. But a lot of clients just need some sort of parameters. But let's talk about the entire addressable market 10 years from now. What do you see that? Because that's really where the alpha is going to be. Those next crypto assets, the next protocols, the next processes that are being disintermediated. The simplest way to think of it is let's look at household net worth and corporate net worth. Household net worth is $300 trillion globally. In the U.S., it's about $142 trillion. And I know where you're going. The crypto market cap right now globally is two and a half. Yeah. And as you know, corporate net worth is like 80 trillion. 
because you know companies might have treasury or they might have NFTs or other businesses. So you're talking roughly 400 trillion of corporate plus household net worth. And should crypto be a two trillion dollar market, and that's as big as it gets if it's disrupting finance? This is the same reason why, like, when people are like, oh, equity ownership is twenty four percent of U.S. household net worth, it's insane. And then you go, oh, well, fifty percent is bonds. <laughs> What's more insane, bonds or twenty four percent in equity? So, what is it that these crypto naysayers? And you have fun with them. You have fun with your trolls on Twitter a little bit. What is Peter Schiff? have totally wrong about Bitcoin because he's got a massive bug up his ass about Bitcoin. I have never talked to Peter and I really treat most of his in good fun. I think most of his attacks and trolls I view as just in good fun. Well, he's trying to get a lot of attention and you're not going to give it to him because you're just not going to get in a Twitter war with him about Bitcoin because what you're doing is backed by a whole heck of a lot of data here. So what do guys like him get wrong about it though? I think people don't have the self-awareness that their generation doesn't matter. So if you had to say to me empirically, like let's say we asked either aliens or computers to say what 20-year sliver in the population today, because you know the age range is age zero to 100. But if you took a, just a 20-year sliver and you look at any year, any time in history from 1700s to now, what age group matters the most? It's people age 30 to 50. That. 20-year age band is the only generation that drives economic growth. Most companies are founded by people age 30, 50. So one, if someone's under age 30, they're a future 30-year-old, but their views aren't that important. And if someone's over age 50, hate to say it, even if you're rich, you don't really matter to the economy. So when you hear people attack crypto in their 50, I think it's the same people that were trashing wireless in the 90s and trashing internet and calling it fax machine in the yeah. 2000s. It's the lack of self-awareness. Whether it's Apple, Costco, United Healthcare, Blackstone, Bloomberg, the founders were in their 30s when they created the companies. What do you think are some of the biggest catalysts right now? You talk to a lot of investors who are primarily focused on the equity markets, and I know that you have a basket on FS Insight of Bitcoin equities, and there's a couple ETFs in there. Is the creation of ETFs a big part of the theme? Because right now, one of the things that I hear from a lot of people who are intellectually very interested in the idea of these alternative, decentralized, immutable risk assets is they just don't know how to get involved. They don't know how to do the wallets. And that's one of the reasons why Coinbase has a 50-some billion dollar market cap in the public equity markets here. So what do you think about the potential of ETFs? Are our regulators going to allow them? Are they going to look more like true ETFs that are based on the underlying assets? And is that a 2022 thing? There's the asset class, and then there's the ways to get exposure. By necessity, in crypto, I think ETFs and asset managers are important. Having access to crypto via an asset manager or having access to an ETF matters because it's the same reason you can't buy a stock to get exposure to venture capital. If you want to get exposure to venture capital as an asset class, you have to be an LP. And in crypto, the things that become public companies aren't crypto plays necessarily. But I do think the exception this year is crypto equities are now pretty good equity plays because mining's become very corporate. That's Bitcoin related. The banks like Silvergate and some of the exchanges have great economics. So they're great equity plays. So I think that's what's changed is that you can get exposure through equities. Right. And so all of a sudden, it seems like in 2022, investors might have a whole host of different ways to express those views. 
I saw that Kraken, which is a very large exchange, just did a huge round. They've raised $140 million to date, a $10 billion valuation. FTX has raised over a billion and a half just in the last year or so. That's a big, big value. That's like tens of billions of dollars. And then here's one I want to get to. So you have these big exchanges where VC money is just piling into, and they're going to be big market caps, and they're going to come to the equity markets probably in the not-so-distant future. So you're going to have ways to express those views in the equity markets. But here's one that I think is really interesting. And just this week, OpenSea, the largest NFT exchange that was founded in 2017, just did a raise, I think, about $300 million at a $13.3 billion valuation. Their revenue in 2020 went from like $22 million in revenue based on NFTs to, you ready for this? OpenSea's transaction value went from $22 million in 2020 to $14 billion last year, $350 million in revenue for them. Okay, this thing is a monster. So when you think about onboarding people to the crypto rails, NFTs is going to be the thing. Can we agree on that right now? Because DeFi is really something as it relates to enterprises and decentralizing these processes that most individuals, they might access DeFi protocols, but that's a ways out. Right now, millions of people are coming onto the crypto platforms based on NFTs. What's your take on that? And do you agree with that? Crypto is entirely an experiment because it's basically everything's decentralized in a way. And then there's centralized entities. We just talked about a bunch of the centralized entities, which is kind of one of the criticisms in a way is that most people's on-ramps to this decentralized financial world is through very centralized platforms, not too different than the criticisms that we hear of the last 15 years about some of these social platforms. And it just shows you that in a world of decentralized trust, the trust vectors are quite valuable. I think NFTs, it's already spoken that the market has ascribed value to it. Like, so to me, it's just such a broad thing. It's something that I don't completely understand because I think digital scarcity and digitally unique today isn't as practically important, but it might be really important in the future where the metaverse is a real economy. So then if the metaverse takes off, all the NFTs today are going to have exponential value because they have legacy being early, plus they're digitally unique. So these could be quite valuable by several orders of magnitude higher. So does that justify OpenSea? Yes. I think OpenSea is, it's brilliant. Digital scarcity is really important, but there's 10,000 board apes and, and they're trading the floor prices, you know, tens, if not hundreds of thousands for some of them. I can give you an example too. So like, this is where people have to be careful. And someone pointed this out in one of my Telegram groups and it's correct. Let's say that you mint an NFT and you sell it to yourself for 2 million ETH. So now you have your long 2 million ETH that yeah. you just paid yourself plus you have a $2 million NFT. And then you sell your NFT to someone for only 200,000, okay? So you sell it for 90% loss. Yeah, and you book this massive loss. Now you have $2.2 million worth of ETH. You actually came out ahead, even though you had a wash sale of an ETH at 2 million. All right, lastly, Tom, I want to get you on this because right now it seems like this whole notion of Web3, and I know that a lot of people are trying to kind of tie into a lot of issues as it relates to metaverse. There's a lot of debate on it. There's a lot of Twitter wars going on. So Jack Dorsey, founder, CEO of Block Square, since he left Twitter, he resigned, I think, in late November. He's kind of on a bit of a Twitter rampage, railing against Web3 in a way. He's this Bitcoin maximalist, and he doesn't really see a whole heck of a lot of value in a lot of stuff that's being built, let's say, on Ethereum or Solana, those smart contract layer ones. What's your take on this? Is it kind of just a bunch of noise? Is it just entertainment right now? 
I mean, Web3 is kind of marketing. It's a marketing tagline, right? I don't know. It's too early because you remember a lot of the early crypto things like browsers, those are the things that have really not taken off. Yeah, decentralizing some of these older protocols, it's just, it's kind of hard. To your point about, we just talked about it with NFTs, on decentralized exchanges, you wouldn't have the sort of volume explosion because people don't know how to, you have to make it easy for them. So I think that makes a whole heck of a lot of sense. Well, listen, Tom, we really appreciate you coming on OK Computer. We love hearing really from a perspective that's very different than a lot of these avatar profile pictures, people on Twitter, anonymous. You've come on, you've been talking about this space for years. And I think you've really helped it come to the main stage as it relates to institutional investors. You've legitimized it in my eyes, and I really appreciate all of your takes on it. Nice to be here, Dan. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.